This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. As Brene Brown says so eloquently, it's, it's through the vulnerabilities that people connect to us. They don't connect to us if we're like, I've got it all together because no one does, right? So if you hear that, you're like, well, I guess I don't have anything in common with that person. But if you're able to be open and say, yeah, it's, I've, I've struggled with this or that, people immediately want to connect with you because so have they. So have they. Please welcome my amazing guest, Lisa Gear, who is the award-winning author of Flashback Girl and a clinical psychologist in private practice. At just four years old, she was severely burned in a fire of over two-thirds of her body, spending most of her childhood undergoing countless surgical procedures. She's been featured on NPR, NBC, ABC, Fox, and Sirius XM and publishes a bi-monthly blog about psychological resilience. She's a national keynote speaker with over 12,000 social media followers on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Dr. DeGear has a remarkable story of resilience, overcoming the odds, and you will not want to miss this special episode about her story of survival. Welcome back to my podcast. This is Big Ideas in Small Windows. And I'm here with Lisa Gear. She has such a remarkable story to share, and I can't wait to jump right in and, and talk with her about it. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I'm glad to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you here. So this podcast is focused on big ideas that we can capture in small doses, ways to get a valued message out. What would you say is your one big idea? So my one big idea is that Most people, most of us, are capable of great psychological resilience and overcoming trauma and leading a beautiful life. And if you don't feel like you're capable of it yet, you can get better at it. I love that. It sounds like a growth mindset to me. As soon as you started describing that, that's what I went to. And you really are like the poster child of this. So we're going to jump into that if you don't mind. And I have to tell a funny story while we're here. So I'm sitting at a friend of mine's table and you and I know her well, her name is Andrea. And she has this contagious laugh that you can't stop laughing with her on. She's one of those people that's gravitating. And she has this book on her table. And I said, what's that? And it's this book called Flashback Girl. And of course, this is your, your book. And it's all about your story that, yeah, that we're going to jump into. And, and just a neat sidebar experience that we have a mutual friend and that's how we get connected. Absolutely. Hey, Andrea. (laughs) There you go. A little shout out to Andrea. So the cover of your book, speaking of that book, has an interesting design. If you look closely at it, can you tell us about that design and and why you chose it? Yeah. Thank you so much for even noticing the cover, because if you don't look closely, it will pass you by. 
So the cover of my book, Flashback Girl, it's a bright yellow book and it looks like there's a flower drawn on it with black. And then if you look more closely, you might notice that the black is charcoal. And then if you look at it more closely than that, you'll notice that the stem of the flower itself is a match with a little bit of smoke drifting off towards the side. So what it is, is a perfect representation of my story, which started with a terrible fire and has ended up in beauty. And it doesn't show how, but the idea that one can go from a terrible tragedy and make something beautiful out of it. And I wanna give a shout out to the cover designer. That's my, my incredibly talented nephew, Austin Alphonse, who is a terrifically talented artist in his own right, works in New York City. I was gonna ask you about the artist because I'm like, I gotta get him on my next book. That was incredible, the subtle cues in there and the way you describe your journey really spoke to post-traumatic growth, which of course you touch on. You talk a lot about resilience. And I guess going back to that book, where did the the title Flashback Girl originate from? It's interesting sometimes how things come together with projects. I had known I would be writing my memoir for many, many years, but was not ready to do so. I put it off for some very good reasons. And just around the time that I was able to start writing my book, I came to understand something very key about the fire that had burned me when I was a little girl, something that I had never known before. And in the course of investigating that, I contacted the lawyer who had represented me at the time. Turns out he had passed away, but I spoke to his brother. And when I started to describe myself, I said, ah, I'm least gear. I was burned in 1967 and your brother represented me. Here's this pause. He goes, ah, are you the flashback girl? Wow. What? He's like, you're the flashback girl. So I didn't realize that I had this little nickname and I didn't realize that my case actually was pivotally important towards some laws being passed. I didn't know any of that until 50 years had passed. Amazing. As a matter of fact, you were, and I quote, case number one. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So around this time that I, it was literally the 50th anniversary of the fire that had burned me so terribly. And I just kind of in a morose sort of way, went through this file that I had with with notes that my father had taken and old articles. And I noticed in the article that I read for the first time, really carefully, that the lighter fluid that supposedly had caused my flyer was not lighter fluid. It was something else, which is the story I'd, I'd never been told that. So I started to investigate. You know, you can find everything on the internet now. <laughs> And in my investigation, I discovered that my fire was presented in front of the part of the United States Senate when they were looking to pass laws in the Consumer Protection Act. And my lawyer presented me as one of the sort of tragedies of a fire that could have been prevented if consumers were better taken care of. And my little picture 
of me as, you know, an incredibly burned four-year-old girl was presented in front of the Senate. And again, I have no idea of right. any none. And I saw that image. It really moved me. You see this little girl who's clearly in shock. I was reading your story and I don't want to speak for you, but you know, your arms are literally fused to your body and your mouth is damaged now and requiring years and years of surgery. So as a father, as an educator, my heart went right to that poor child. How could this, how could this have happened? And of course you talk about all of that in, in your book, certainly at the beginning, and then you get into how you responded to that both in negative ways or, or challenging ways, and then in ways of recovery. Um, but you take us into a very deep and intimate dive in, into those trials and struggles that you endured. What motivated you to be so transparent with your readers? It's, it's just remarkable how frank you are. Just tell us a little bit about that. We haven't mentioned the fact that I'm a psychologist yet, and, and I am, and that's, that's how I've made my living, and that's my work. It's really important to me. And so I hear all the times people suffer a lot. And, and I think a lot of times in the world, we pretend that we don't. And we make, you know, kind of put the happy face on things. But in reality, life is hard. And there's a lot of problems and a lot of downright crises that people go through. And I have been through many, you know, the fire that we're talking about is actually only just the beginning of a good 20 years of some really terrible hardship, maybe longer than 20 years now that I think about it. And yet I now have a beautiful life. I really do. I have wonderful work. I'm an author. I present, I, I'm married. I have two great kids. I've got a cute dog. Like I've got a really nice life. And I wanted to write about the fact that life actually is much harder than we tend to acknowledge, but that doesn't mean that there isn't hope and that people can make it through terrible things with the right mindset. And part of the right mindset is accepting the fact that some terrible things are going to happen to you, but you can make it through. So I'm not, if I'm not going to be transparent about everything that happened, how are you going to know that I know what I'm talking about? I love it. It reminds me of Brenny Brown's work on vulnerability. And yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with her. My wife and I watched her. Yeah. Remarkable. And really gets to that point of transparency and accepting and embracing your vulnerability. And I think that's, it sounds like that's part of the recovery process. Would you agree? It, it certainly has been for me, yeah, and being real about who you are and what you've been through and, and the ways that you're strong and the ways you're not so strong, right? And, and it's, it's really, you know, as Brene Brown says so eloquently, it's, it's through the vulnerabilities that people connect to us. You don't connect to us if we're like, I've got it all together because no one does, right? So if you hear that, you're like, well, I guess I don't have anything in common with that person. But if you're able to be open and say, yeah, it's, I've, I've struggled with this or that, people immediately want to connect with you because so have they. So have they. They have. And actually, when you said that, if someone's being phony about it, it sort of reminded me of narcissistic personalities that 
that's why people like that are such a turnoff to most of us because we don't believe them and, and they're not authentic and they're, they're obviously covering and it's definitely a more humane way to approach it. Speaking of humane and not so humane, kids in school can be pretty brutal. And I don't know if I mentioned this to you. So I was born with a club foot. I wore a knee high brace until I was about 12. And you can imagine knowing what your story is, there were some pretty mean things done to me. And I really had to learn how to manage that and sort of distract away from that. I bet this is hitting home. Tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you faced from kids not understanding what you were up against. And then I guess the second part of that is how do we teach tolerance? Let me just first say, I'm so sorry that you went through that. I just, I, you know, immediately my heart's like, oh, I get that. I'm so sorry that that happened. So Thank yeah, I, I also was really terribly bullied when I was a kid. The fire happened in the late 60s. And let me tell you, there was no school intervention on bullying. I don't even remember bullying being like talked about as being a word let alone intervention, uh, there was nothing. It was, you know, the only intervention I ever remember hearing about being bullied was uh, the phrase sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Mm -hmm. Like just supposed to like get with the program and go on. And I remember thinking like, (laughs) they they hurt me. I don't, I'm clearly doing something wrong here, but yeah, I, I was, I was terribly bullied all through my childhood by kids who didn't know me. I will say that the kids who did know me were almost always really nice. And I think that's part, and I I suspect you were the same way, Mike. If you can establish yourself as just being a kind and nice human being, most of the time people don't want to bully you anymore. They're like, oh, they're nice. It's the people who don't know you. Yeah. Yeah. I do. In fact, I was thinking about some of the coping mechanisms I use. They They were more like attempts at humor sort of distract away from what I was dealing with. So that in my mind, people would forget about it, but yeah, I totally relate. And, and so I guess, so how do we teach, you know, I'm, I'm an educational leader and, and you're a, a psychologist. How do we teach kids tolerance? I mean, this is a big question, right? But I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Well, and if I, if I knew I had the right answer, I'd be a, a very famous billionaire somewhere, but my, my suspicion is that the best way we teach tolerance is by modeling it for our children and being the example for them. And I think that that is true because I've noticed that friends and relatives that I have that I know are empathic and sensitive to their kids and model the right stuff usually their kids seem to embrace that as the family values. It's what they, their brains get molded in that mindset. Mm. So I think it has a lot to do with what we model to our kids. What do you think? I love that answer. And I would say that that and a level of expectation, I've done a lot of research in my writing on the negative impacts of uh, social media and misinformation in particular. And I'm writing a book now that's coming out next fall. And a lot of this is on how we help kids work around those negative social media influences. And I was just thinking of one that ties right into something we were talking about 
know, I always think of the saying, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm. And kids really struggle with, especially girls, right? And I have two daughters of my own physical appearance and how they may be judged. And there was a great Instagram study done a couple of years ago. I love finding these little studies that you can expand on and then share with people. And it was a re- authentic self versus fictional self comparison. And when this was taught to kids in school, the girls had a much healthier response to not feeling like they had to measure up to that fictional highlight reel, as we know often happens on social media and just felt more centered about themselves. And it was a really powerful, not so well-known study. I love finding these studies that should be more well-known, but then I'm going to try to make them well-known. So that's my thought on this is we need to show kids reality versus, I guess, a fictional narrative that distorts their way of thinking. And what you said about modeling is one of the best ways to do that. I love that. I, I also, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a quick tangent here because there's something that I'm, I'm been starting to speak on, which is how it is that society has developed an unconscious bias against facial difference. I'm burned on my face. I, I mean, I look a heck of a lot better than I did when I was four, but I'm still, I'm a burned person. I'm a member of the burned community, but there's lots of people with facial difference, whether it's through burns or cancer or birthmarks or what have you, there's lots of us. And people, if you, if you ask somebody, like nobody's like, oh, I hate people who look facially different. Like, you know what I mean? Nobody really means that. They, who wants, who would say that? But in fact, people are quite prejudiced against facial difference and often on an unconscious level. And what we're starting to understand through some really great work being done in, in England is that the TV shows and movies from the earliest of ages, the villains are almost all facially disfigured. So if you look at Lion King, the villain, his name is literally Scar. Darth Vader is a burn victim. Freddy Krueger is burned. Phantom of the Opera is burned. Mm. I could go on and on and on. Beauty and the Beast. The beast, when he's when he he's like just a normal guy, and then he turns like to be mean, so he gets turned into an ugly, ugly beast. And then when he gets to be nice again, he gets to be handsome again. So there's this mindset that beauty is good, and facial difference means you're either usually evil in the media or maybe just pathetic. And that's kind of the steady diet that we see in all kinds of movies and TV shows. So it's no wonder that people do, you know, unconsciously have a whole lot of prejudice against people who look different. Yeah, what a powerful subconscious brainwashing almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So we talked about you being a survival. In fact, nearly two thirds of your body was burned as a, as a child. And that in and of itself is, is a challenge. But you're not just a severe burn victim, as we talked about, or survivor, I should say. What's that? So I apologize. Let me correct myself. And that's that's a subconscious bias, isn't it? You are not just a burn survivor, but you you have dealt with so much more in your life. And this is what we talked about earlier about you being so open and transparent about it. You were called ugly girl. 
-hmm. We talked about the looks issue. There was this study done a few years ago of Golden Gate Bridge survivors. Are you familiar with this study? Yeah. So just one of those neat little things that I find online and in my research, there were 29 survivors, not that many, but they were able to find enough of them and then ask them, what were you thinking the moment you, you left? And every single one of them said the exact same fear or concern, or, and it was regret. I wish I hadn't done this. It's never this bad. So that's a remarkable thing when you consider that they've been brought themselves to this point of willing to end their life. And then all of a sudden, when their moment occurs, they're saying, wait a minute, stop. Thank God for those 29, it did uh, happen. So do you believe all of these challenges that you've been through serve some kind of a purpose for you? Yes. One of the things that you talk about very transparently is experiencing attempted suicide by others and, and close to you. So do you believe that, that any of that serves a purpose? It just seems like it wouldn't, but how do you feel about that? I think there's a difference sometimes between something serving a purpose and teaching you something and that it, that it was meant to be. And so I don't want to say that the suicides that happened in my family were meant to be because I think that they were tragic. So I don't, I don't want to use that language around it. But did they teach me things? You betcha. First of all, as you know, I'm a psychologist and some of my clients are really not well. And some of them do struggle with suicidal thoughts. And I believe that I am a good guide during those times. I, I think I, I understand compassionately what people are going through. And yet I can be a very strong advocate for like, look, just make it through this day. And then we'll talk about making it through the next day. And the earth keeps turning and you won't always feel this bad because no one does. And anyway, I have a way of connecting with people who are going through very hard times. That being said, I can usually only handle one or two people like that at a time because it is incredibly draining and challenging work. And it takes a a lot out of both of us, I think, (laughs) the client and me. I can imagine. I will say also that with Flashback Girl coming out, my book, I've literally heard from readers, I think two of them now, who said to me, I was going to kill myself and now I won't having read your book. That's great news. Exactly. You saved lives. Yeah. I know what you mean about it being emotionally draining dealing with kids who are in, in experiencing trauma. And I wrote a book called Leading Schools Through Trauma. And one of the things that became very clear to me is that you can't just do this with one silver bullet. It doesn't work that way. There's so many support mechanisms and components that have to kind of be intertwined. And I was thinking about one of the things you talked about, which were superheroes in, in your book. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I want to hear about that. Who are some to name a couple, and why are they superheroes? I'll name two. And the first superhero that comes to my mind is and will always be my brother, Mark, who literally in my, in, when we were little, we used, I grew up playing Batman and Robin with him. So he's my Batman. And I, I, I will often use that phrase when I think about him. And he was a superhero to me because he was my best parent. You know, neither one of my parents were really psychologically capable of being 
emotionally sophisticated parents who could guide their children through difficulties. And both my brother and I had tremendous difficulties. My parents were not up for it. But my brother, even though he's only five years older than me, he was up for it. And he was wise and kind and really an awesome person. I unfortunately lost him young. And that's, you know, uh, I'll leave that for a reader to find that story. So he was a superhero, but, but he's, he's been gone a long time. My other superhero was my plastic surgeon who really took excellent care of me. I was in the hospital for a fair portion of my childhood. And when I was there, my parents were not there, which is again, a whole other story, but my, my doctor was, and I always felt like he really loved me and had my back. If anybody out there who's been burned or reconstructed, plastic surgeons are a little bit like gods. I mean, they make your body come back again. So there is a, a hero aspect to that. Yeah, it's interesting when you said that I went right back in my memory, like it happened yesterday to the days I'd go to the children's hospital in Philadelphia for the, some of the surgeries I had on my, on my leg. And then, of course, I thought about my kid memory, which was I couldn't wait for the Philadelphia soft pretzels my mom would take me for afterwards. So she was obviously a hero, but so were the doctors who took care of me. And I ended up becoming a very active athlete, and I'm still very physically active, and, and I really owe a lot of that to them. So I can totally relate when you say that the miracle work they do. Uh, and that can also, I'm sure, be emotionally draining. That's why when, when I hear people say they have such a bad bedside manner, well, it's tough to have a good bedside manner. It's got to be very difficult to be able to do that and balance being such a skilled surgeon. So that's a mm-hmm. neat, neat perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I suspect that these superheroes and those that you suggest others can lean on serve, a, again, a, a role in people's lives. Would you say so? Well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully everybody has this one, at least one superhero that they can rely on who's there for them, right? God knows we all need them. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of mentors. We talk a lot about mentoring in, in education. And I always think of uh, a, a famous study in Hawaii, which I've mentioned many times in books and, and in pre- presentations I've done, where there was about a third of the kids identified as at risk. And there was this massive, you know, the one. Uh, longitudinal study, like over 40 some odd years. And this really cool researcher, Emmy Weiner, followed these people for four decades. And she learned that there were a third of these at-risk kids who showed remarkable resilience and were able to demonstrate this kind of post-traumatic growth that you have. And basically they identified three protective factors. And, and one of them was a strong role model or adult in their life. The second one was a strong affiliation with something such as a club or a team or something like that. And then the third one was some internal resilience. But what's cool about that third one is you might quickly say, oh, that can only come internally. But we talked earlier about growth mindset. That's teachable. So that's really amazing because there's these three kind of bridge components that mean that we can really help people. Right. I am so happy that you mentioned that study because I've you know, done a fair amount of research on resilience too. And I, I know her work well. And in, in my talk, I do a lot of talking about resilience um, all over the place these days. And I talk a lot about the mindset of resilience and the mindset of resilience 
and this is comes from somewhat from her work as versus other other people's too, is captured in the mnemonic goals plus MM. So G stands for gratitude, O is for optimism, A is for active coping, L is for love, S is for social skills, and MM is for meaning making. And that is the resilient mindset. Oh, I love that. That's a great mnemonic. I have to, I'm going to write that down after I edit this video because I'm going to be sharing that with people. That's a tremendous mechanism to offer people. I think you must be using that in your work. I mean, I talk about it all the time and, you know, and, and I mean, I just laid that out for you, but that we could talk about that for 20 minutes. Sure. Skills and what they mean and how they affect you and why they're important. But to the point that you were making earlier, every one of those skills is learnable. Every mm -hmm. one of them. Right. Right. And you were describing that. And I was thinking in my head, she's a psychologist telling somebody this. So she's going to get some partial respect there. But where to me, you get the full respect with anybody who you're helping is you've lived through all this. You have literally lived through all of this. So you have like the double advantage there of saying, I get it, man. I get it. Yeah, exactly. And as so it's a friend of mine said like, oh, look, you can kind of talk about it both from the expert angle and also from the lived experience angle. And when I talk, I actually, I wear both those hats. I start off with like, I'm the little burn girl that could, here's my incredible and sad and difficult story. And also here's the psychologist in me coming to tell you I think this is how I did it. And I know this is how other people can do it. And let me tell you how you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about those protective factors we were talking about earlier. And what are some of the ones that stand out to you the most that you, that helped you not only to survive, but literally to thrive in your life. You talked about how you're thriving and how you have thrived. Yeah. To the point that you made earlier, relationships are so key and the ability to have the social skills to form relationships and to keep relationships and to have and keep love in my life has been incredibly important. And partly, you know, I think I'm, I'm sort of born a fairly cheerful and upbeat and friendly person, although being bully all your childhood could take that out of you. So, <laughs> you know, I just partly, I think that's just me. And also I have been fortunate enough that I've had a lot of people who believe in me. So that, that love has sustained me and friendships and you know, people who were there for me when honestly my, my parents weren't able to be. I also put it straight out on the table. I've had a lot of therapy and it helped me a lot, a lot. And I think anybody who's been traumatized or who's gone through something difficult could benefit from that. And I think, maybe almost everybody could benefit from that. Cause you know, again, life is hard and sometimes we need people to show us the way a little bit. Yeah. And haven't most of us been through big or small, some form of a trauma at some point. You betcha. Yeah. And if you haven't, I'm sorry to say you probably will. I mean, I don't think anybody leaves this earth without going through something hard and many, sometimes many things hard. Mm -hmm. For sure. How does forgiveness, and in, in your case, for individuals like your own mother, play into your resilience and success? Yeah. 
I didn't really have the chance to talk too much about my mother, but my, my God bless her, my mother was a very self-focused person and was really unable to keep me and my brother safe in multiple, multiple ways and did both of us. Unfortunately, she never meant to, but a, a great deal of damage. And again, I'll, I'll leave the book to explain more of that. So she had a lot of problems, my mother. And, you know, I think over time, I grew to understand that she was very limited and maybe some reasons why she was very limited. And in understanding her, I was able to have a little bit of distance from the pain that she caused and to accept her as she was. Having said that, just because you're gonna forgive somebody doesn't mean you want them over for dinner. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, And I think a lot of times, especially in the forgiveness literature, it makes it seem like you can forgive somebody and then you're gonna have a great relationship with them. And that I don't actually think that sometimes that's true. It certainly wasn't true for me and it wouldn't have been healthy for me because my mother continued to cause a lot of pain, but I understood who she was and why she did it that way. And God rest her soul. This reminds me a lot of what you hear in recovery work where people, it's almost the reverse, are making amends, but it's not to get the person to say, I forgive you. It's to, it's to release that bond and then move on, move through your recovery process. Right. It releases the bond of, of shame and guilt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know this might be the wrong way to ask the question, but I'm going to try it. What was your turning point or was there a series of things I think is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. I think the turning point in terms of the worst moment of my life was when my brother died, which was when I really realized I was, I was on my own. And then the turning point in terms of things going well for me and um, you know, life growing into a whole different place was when I had children of my own. I, I, you know, I, and not that being a parent is easy because God knows it isn't, but it was such a joy to me to bring my little girls into this world and to create a family of my own, to love and nurture and care for. So I had been very much on my own for a long time. So having children released a lot of joy again back into my life. So what's really interesting about that is, is what was a challenging turning point was the end of a life close to you. And then what was a remarkable turning point was the beginning of lives. Oh, yay. I love that. You're right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was like light bulb time for us, right? <laughs> that was really powerful to pick up on that. I could totally get that. I mean, having lived through both uh, my father died when I was five of leukemia. So I, I knew death at an early age. I didn't understand it, of course, at that age, but I knew it. And I can remember some of the challenges and, and it was not an easy youth. I, I share a lot about my own trauma and challenges in, in my book. And people are like, that's you? Because <laughs> I can hide it better than, than others. And so it's interesting because then you see lives be born and it's like you're invigorated again. It's amazing. That's definitely something I could connect to. As a veteran educator, I see children struggling more than ever. And what can educators do to help? 
I mean, that's a giant question too, but I just wonder what your thoughts are. You know, I think we underestimate the power of simple connection. And I would imagine that educators help any time that they really notice a child and work to connect with them and help that child feel seen and known and understood. I certainly remember certain teachers who went out of their way to connect with me and help me feel seen and appreciated. And, and it made a world of difference. And you know, it's not like they changed my life or something or that you know made me not scarred or my brother not die or any of these other things, but it, that, that sense of, oh, look, someone sees me and someone cares for me and that person seems awesome. So there must be more of that. There'll be more of that in my life. And I think any teacher who provides that is probably providing a great deal more than they think they are. It's funny, I will say also as a psychologist, I've had a lot of clients by now, you know, I've, I've been working for a super long time. And sometimes I'll hear from people, you know, years later, they'll be like, you helped me so much. And I'm thinking like, I think we had three sessions. Like, <laughs> could I possibly, I don't say that. What I say is I'm so glad. But, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, could I really have helped you? And like, I, we hardly did anything together. But it's the presence, right? It's that caring presence. It's seeing somebody and caring about them. Sometimes that's kind of all you need to do to give a person hope. Yeah, that attention and feedback, right? That's the, that seems to me like the two things that I would encourage. That's such a great point. Thank you. So you've been on everything from the local news, which I saw that episode, to national interviews and podcasts. You've had an opportunity to get your word out everywhere. And what are some of the main messages you would hope were you were able to convey in those experiences? Mm. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty exciting, this whole book and speaking part of my life that's opened up in the last couple of years. But, you know, my, my main point, the, hope, the thing I keep trying to get across again and again is that you too can be the most unfortunate person you've ever seen or known in your life, which I definitely was when I was a kid. I was the kid that you would look at and go, oh my God, that poor kid. Mm. You can be that kid or you can be that person and your life can still turn out great. It's not going to just happen. You're going to have to work at it and it's not going to be easy and at all. But if you work at it and if you have hope and you keep trying, life can turn out well. And also, I think part of that message is if you love somebody who's going through a very hard time, don't give up on them either. They can still have a great life. And that there's a mindset to developing that and we can work on that. Yeah, that's, that's a very hopeful message. And I, I just love the way you, you brought that home. Lisa DeGear, author of Flashback Girl, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wished I had or just anything you want to comment on? I can't think of anything I wish you asked me. I just I've really enjoyed talking to you. I feel a, a little bit of a kindred spirit on the other end of the screen here. So 
Thank yeah, you. I definitely felt a connection. And I mean, having gone through my own challenges, I don't think that they were as challenging, but I think then, then I get into the comparison game and that's not fair. The point is, is we've, we both went through challenges in childhood, probably greater than most. And I really appreciate sitting here across from someone who is so insightful and has so much to offer. You have to pick up this book if you didn't have a chance to. It's, it's a great read and you're not going to be able to put it down. Where can people find you? Yeah, so thanks for asking. First of all, Flashback Girl is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If you go to your local indie store, they can order it for you. So it's available all over and all over the world too. I want to say that. And then if you are looking to connect with me, my website is my name. It's lisatagira.com. I also, I put out a, a blog every other week on topics about resilience. And some people, you know, really enjoy that. That's free and it's easy. And just kind of an inspirational message usually every other week about some aspect about life and getting through it. And I would be glad to connect with anyone. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter and all the things. Excellent. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. And that uh, blog is a great tip to get people started interested in reading some of your work. So that's a great example. I appreciate that. Again, Lisa Gear, thanks so much for your time. It's been, like you said, it's kindred spirits here bonding. I wish we had more time and we could just hang for a little while, but maybe one of those days we'll be sitting there with Andrea just laughing together at her laugh. We have to get her <laughs> to invite us over. <laughs> That's a date. It's a deal. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. I hope you enjoyed this episode hearing the extraordinary story of a survivor who shows how post-traumatic growth looks for all of us who need some hope. Stay tuned next Sunday for another amazing guest on the podcast, Big Ideas in Small Windows. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.